Till Death Do Us Part is a lighthearted and sometimes satirical true crime podcast where we present our dysfunctional married take on serious cases involving other dysfunctional relationships. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the 105th episode of Till Death Do Us Part. I am Daniel. And I am Melissa. Right as I pushed record, I just realized I haven't brushed my teeth today. Oh, is that what that is? Yeah. I apologize. It's fine. We're in this small space, and I still want you to find me attractive after this. We are going to be changing studios soon. Oh, yeah. We're having a professional recording studio built, and we're (laughs) we're almost ready to move into it. No. It's actually we're swapping rooms with our daughter. So she wants this room. We're going to move into her room. And it turns out she could hear us and everything we did in our bedroom suite. She could hear through her walls. Yeah. And that's rather embarrassing. (laughs) Well, at least she didn't hear very much. (laughs) Well, you have like parent discussions. and We do. And I listen to other podcasts while I'm getting ready for bed. Now, so she's going to bed and hearing really not great things. I've told you, though, you listen to a podcast while you're taking a shower, and I can hear every <laughs> word of the podcast from anywhere inside the house. Yes, but they're good podcasts. No, I'm just, I've told you that, that <laughs> I know. you can hear it because it echoes so, so much. I can't not shower without a podcast in the background. Um. FYI, it is not a professional studio. We are just moving locations in our home. That's it. That's it. (laughs) All right, Daniel, you got some factoids for me? Here's what I got. You're welcome. 12 animal sex facts you might not know. We're going to start off with the lovely alligator. So unlike most um, penises, sorry, folks. Those of you that don't want to hear the word penis, you're going to hear penis a lot. (laughs) So normally that particular organ changes uh, dimensions, shall we say. Like most penises. Right. Typically. The alligator has a permanent erection. Nice. How awesome is that? Nice. There's no foreplay. Yeah, no. You just get it done. Plus, it's an alligator. They're cool with it. They're like, check me out. I just have a permanent erection. Is that why we never see them floating on their backs? Unless they're dead? That's a great question. I'm trying to think if you've ever seen one with a little, you know, schmegel hanging out. No. I've never seen an alligator's penis. Just know that you should be ashamed of yourself right now if you're going to Google alligator penis pictures. Oh, I'm going to after this is over yeah. for sure. That's what I'm here for. So they described that the penis, when it's time, bursts out suddenly like the baby alien from John Hurt's stomach in Alien. I thought they said it was already out. And now it's bursting out? Well, it's already it's oh, already, it's already there. It's already erect. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Even underwater photos or videos that I've seen of alligators, I've never seen this willy like swimming right along with it. I apologize. That makes sense now. Okay. I was thinking the same thing. So basically, when they're ready to get it on... It just pops out. They basically force it out by muscles, 
but by the application of pressure on its abdominal cavity, which they call it an essential bit of reptilian foreplay. So you're welcome, <laughs> alligators. <laughs> reptilian foreplay? <laughs> That's Why awesome. Why not? Female kangaroos have three vaginas. Oh, gosh. You're welcome. That sounds awful. Do they have three periods? They say actually all marsupials, for that matter, have three. What else is a marsupial? I don't know. Is a koala? What? what probably. Why did you ask me that? Now I don't know. I don't know because I just always have questions. Someone's going to comment, and that's fine. They possess three vaginal tubes, but only one vaginal opening, eliminating any confusion on the part of their mates. When males inseminate the females, their sperm travels up either or both of the side tubes, and about 30 days later, the tiny joey travels down the central tube from which it slowly makes its way to its mother's pouch for the remainder of its gestation. All right. I'm going to butcher this name, but it doesn't matter because nobody cares. Antechinus. Antechinus. Techinus. <laughs> Antechinus males copulate themselves to death. Oh, no. It's a tiny mouse-like marsupial. Oh, there's another marsupial. There it is. Another triple vagina animal. During their brief mating season, the males of this genus copulate with females for up to 12 hours straight, stripping their bodies of vital proteins in the process and dismantling their immune systems. Shortly afterward, the exhausted males drop dead. And the females go on to bear litters with mixed paternity, meaning different babies with different fathers. The moms live a little bit longer to nurture their young, and then they die. So they have a very short lifespan. They do, and they only breed once. Oh, well, thank you for your service. Flatworms fence with their own sex organs. <laughs> Flatworms are amongst the simplest invertebrate animals on Earth. They eat and poop from the same opening, but during mating, it's a hermaphroditic critter. Okay. So it's both. It possesses both male and female sex organs. It sprouts pairs of dagger-like appendages, and they fence in slow motion until a hit is scored straight into the other's skin. The loser is impregnated with sperm and becomes the mother, while the father often goes on dueling until it becomes a mother itself, further complicating the confused gender roles. So there you go. You're welcome. I just keep picturing lightsabers. It's exactly. Is that what you were picturing? Only pen penises. Yeah. <laughs> dueling. I have read this before, but we're just going to throw it in here because you should always be reminded. Male porcupines urinate on females before they have sex. Hmm. <laughs> Isn't that a golden showers? Yeah, depending on the color of the urine, I suppose it would be. <laughs> Once a year, they do this. And the male porcupines all fight and bite each other and scratch and yell and scream. And then someone wins. And then the winner climbs up onto a tree branch, urinates copiously on the female, which stimulates her to go into estrus. I don't know what estrus is. I should ask you that. Are you an estrus? <laughs> Probably. The rest is somewhat anticlimactic. The female folds back her quills. Oh, that's probably helpful. 
Probably. So as to not impale her partner. And then they do the normal stuff and it only lasts a couple of seconds like most of us. <laughs> Barnacles. Barnacles. When? Barnacles? Yep. Like the thing on boats? That tiny little hard crustacean that forms on the bottom of the boat that they have to scrape off. Oh, that's a living thing? Oh, you have no idea. I thought it was like mold. Oh, just wait. Oh, goodness. This okay. is the most interesting mold of all. Barnacles have enormous penises. All right. You might imagine that an animal that spends its entire life tethered to one spot has a relatively sedate sex life. In fact, though, barnacles are equipped with the largest penises relative to their size of any creatures on Earth, as much as eight times longer than their bodies. All right, that's pretty good. Wow, that's impressive. Essentially... Frisky barnacles unfurl their organs and attempt to fertilize every other barnacle in their immediate vicinity, all at the same time. Female chickens can eject unwanted sperm. Lovely. After the act, enraged or disappointed females can eject up to 80% of the offending male's sperm, allowing for the possibility that they might be impregnated by roosters higher up on the pecking order. No pun intended. Wow. So they just hold out for better sperm, I guess. That's cool. They're like, oh, hey, hey, let me get rid of this. It's your yeah. turn. Just squeeze it out. Get Sh some new stuff. Why not? Sheep have a high rate of homosexuality. Oh, all right. Homosexuality is an inherited biological trait in some members of the animal kingdom. And nowhere is it more rife than among male sheep. Mm. By some estimates... Almost 10% of rams prefer to mate with other rams rather than females. <laughs> Studies have shown that the behavior of the sheep is reflected in a specific area of their brains, the hypothalamus, and is a hardwired rather than learned behavior. Oh, that's interesting. So there you go. I love during mating season when you go by the sheep farms and they all have colored powder the paint on their butts the, right because they know which ones have been mounted <laughs> so, yeah which ones have been mounted oh and then they all have different colors because it just depends on the ram so if they have a certain color does it mean a ram mounted a ram no it's like <laughs> if they have a certain color like say they have blue that means the ram with the blue gotcha um, stuff on it yeah is the father of whatever baby that comes or whatever okay fair enough I cannot talk today. That's okay. I can't either. <laughs> so it's a good thing we have a podcast. Well, could be worse. <laughs> well, thank you, Daniel. That was entertaining. Yeah, it's awkward, I'm sure, for all the children listening. Or the teenagers. Or the teenagers listening. You're welcome. <laughs> Ask your parents. Daniel. Yes, sexy wife. Are you ready for my case? Please. All right. This is the case of Richard and Hella Crafts. Nice. Hella spelled her name H-E-L-L-E, -E, but it's pronounced Hella. Sure. Okay. On December 1st, 1986, a Newtown, Connecticut private investigator named Keith Mayo called the local police department. He was hoping to file a missing persons report. Keith, 
a former Connecticut police officer, was worried about a client of his, 39-year-old Hella Crafts. He feared that she may have been murdered by her husband, 49-year-old Richard Crafts. According to Keith, after confirming Hella's suspicion that her husband of almost 12 years was having an affair, the 39-year-old mother of three had disappeared. The last time anyone had seen Hella was the night she was dropped off at her home by a co-worker on November 18, 1986, around 6.30 p.m. after working a long-haul flight from Copenhagen to New York. A couple days later, Hella missed her next flight assignment, something Hella would never have done. She would have called in if she wasn't going to make it. Her co-workers immediately became concerned. One even told Keith that Hella had told her that, quote-unquote, if something happens to me, don't assume it was an accident. That's not good. According to some friends and co-workers Keith had talked to, some of them had reached out to Richard immediately after noticing Hella's absence. One friend was told that Hella had flown to Denmark to visit her ailing mother. Another friend was told that Hella had gone on a spur-of-the-moment vacation with a friend to the Canary Islands. One friend was told that Hella had just abandoned Richard and the children. Richard did say that Hella had left on the morning of the 19th, taking her flight bag with her, and he assumed her Toyota Tercel would be found in the parking lot at JFK Airport. And it was. Only a pair of Hella's boots were found in the car. Not one person that knew Hella believed what Richard was saying. Did you know there's certain rules about flying when you're a flight attendant? Like what? You have to be home and rested for a certain amount of hours before you can turn around and do another long-haul flight. She never would have gotten home, say, around 6.30, 7 o'clock, and then the next day have woken up super early to get to the airport to do another long-haul flight. Gotcha. So for safety and everything else. Right. There wasn't enough time that had gone by so she could turn around and get another flight assignment. Well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So her friends and coworkers knew that he was full of it. Okay. Yeah, and I imagine the pilots is even more strict. Yes, it's pretty strict. Yeah. A friend of Hella's was able to reach her 81-year-old mother in Denmark, and she was perfectly fine, but had not spoken to her only daughter since November 17th. This prompted Hella's close friends and co-workers to contact her divorce attorney, who then contacted Keith Mayo, which then prompted Keith to contact the authorities. Divorce attorney? Yes. Oh. Uh-huh. So you with me? Yeah, so there it's complicated. Even with a decent amount of circumstantial evidence, Keith was turned away by the police repeatedly. But Keith, like the rock star he is, decided to launch his own investigation into Hella's disappearance. Keith knew that Hella would never have just left her children. He also knew that Hella had recently asked Richard for a divorce. And that's the scariest time in a relationship. Uh, yeah. 
And Keith also knew that Richard had been known to be physically violent towards Hella on more than one occasion. Uh Uh-oh. So now we have some spousal abuse. Yeah. Beautiful and lovely Hella was born in 1947 in Denmark. Hella was smart, beautiful, and a wonderful mother and friend. Hella realized that her love of people, travel, languages, and cultures would work very well in the profession of air travel. A flight attendant, to be exact. That's what I want to be when I grow up. Well, that's actually what our daughter wants to be. I know. I'm with her. Which is really cool. She said I can't go to flight school with her, and which makes me kind of sad. But I like the little bags of peanuts. You don't get peanuts anymore. You get pretzels. Oh, forget it then. I don't want to do it. Because everyone's allergic to peanuts now. (sighs) (laughs) After a couple of years flying for Capital Airways, Hella was offered a position with Pan American Airlines. Out of 200 applicants, Hella was one of only eight hired. Hella was flown to Miami for training and graduated at the top of her class. Now, this was a big deal, especially back in this time period, to be a flight attendant, but also to be working for one of the big airlines. Oh, yeah. And at that time, Pan Am was huge, you know, before they started falling from the sky. That was only (laughs) once or twice. (laughs) I think it was a little more than twice. Okay. Oh, goodness. We won't get into that. So I can kind of picture her... Having that sexy kind of Scandinavian accent. Yeah, she's a cutie pie. And she's probably like almost six feet tall, blonde, really No, she wasn't six feet tall. She was a little on the smaller side. She was very petite, blonde, big eyes. Yeah. Just beautiful. So why the hell did she pick a jackass? Well, he wasn't a jackass at first. Oh, okay. On May 24th, 1969... 22-year-old Hella met a handsome airline pilot, 31-year-old Richard Crafts, at a hotel near the Miami airport. Sparks immediately flew, and soon the two were dating, but not necessarily exclusive. Richard was former military and had learned to fly helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft. In the late 1950s, Richard earned his pilot certifications. A few years later, he was flying for Air America Airline. This particular airline is used by the CIA. So Richard spent five years in Southeast Asia. Oh, wow. Flying for the CIA. Wow, that's that's very exclusive. It was pretty big. But then now we know. Now we know that Air America is CIA airline. So it's I don't think they fly anymore. Yeah. Probably not. (laughs) You just gave away their secret. Ooh. I mean, it's all over the internet. So. Well, it's kind of a no brainer. So she meets a handsome, very successful ish, right? He's a pilot. I mean, he was, he was decent looking. He was older than her. He had dark hair. He was only 5'8, but he was a pilot. He was an airline pilot. Well, I'm only 5'5". No, you're not. (laughs) By the late 1960s, Richard was a full-time pilot for Eastern Airlines. When Hella met Richard, he had a very active social calendar and was not shy about saying that he exclusively dated only flight attendants. 
And Richard was actually engaged when he met and began seeing Hella. He was a bit of a player. Wow. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised, though. I mean, no, you, I'm not you, either. You kind of, as a pilot, especially back then, all the hot chicks wanted to be flight attendants. Right, like your mom. Yeah, and she was a hot chick. Yeah, she saw the world. Sure. She loved it. So I I, I don't mean, think she dated any pilots, though. Probably not. <laughs> no, but think of that one scene in Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio, uh-huh. where he pretends to be a pilot, and he's surrounded by these beautiful stewardesses back in the day. We used to be able to call him that. And he was just a big rock star the minute he'd step into the airport. Because he had the pilot uniform on. You should be a pilot for Halloween this year. I think that would be really, really nice. That would be fun. All right, let's do it. All right. Are you going to dress up as a flight attendant? I'll be a bag of peanuts. And then you can call me Pilot Dick, like Richard here. <laughs> I was going to call him Dick, but then I thought that was a little too much. <laughs> oh, no, no. It's it's not. That's what people who are named Richard, that was a yeah. alternate name. By the end, we'll start calling him Dick. How's that? Okay. The couple dated on and off for a few years when one day, Hella discovered that she was pregnant. Oh, boy. Oopsie. And in November of 1975, the couple were married. And in 1976, after the birth of their first child, the Crafts moved to a large ranch-style home on two acres in Newtown, Connecticut. Hella's close friends and family were not that excited about the union. They were not that fond of Richard. He was cold and distant, had a temper, and seemed to have lots of secrets. So they weren't. They weren't really into the dick. No. Okay. All right. By 1986, the Crafts had been married for almost 12 years and were the parents of three beautiful children, making a combined income of over $125,000 a year, but they were headed for divorce. Mm -hmm. Now, $125,000 a year is almost $340,000 today. It's probably even more than that. Well, on the calculator, that's what it said. Yeah. But in 86 to make a buck 25. That's pretty good. That was in the top 5%. Oh, yeah. Which is just wild to me. So a commercial airline pilot right now, if you're good. So a normal, like, say, Southwest Airlines, American Airlines type pilot, a veteran pilot, they make anywhere from... Two fifty to five hundred thousand a year. Damn, you're yeah. going back to school. Yep. <laughs> so depending on what they're doing, three four hundred thousand today is easy for an airline pilot. Wow. For those of you wondering what you should go do, that's what you should do. Well, Richard had become physically violent with Hella over the years. Oh, and friends and coworkers had seen bruises on Hella's face more than a few times. Richard was also a habitual cheater and had a tendency to just take off and disappear for days at a time, an absent father and husband. So he was not a good guy, ladies and gentlemen. He is a steaming pile of crap. Yes. Now, even though the crafts were doing very well financially, Richard kept Hella on a tight allowance. But this guy was able to buy whatever he wanted whenever he wanted. And he'd buy, like, stupid stuff. He had this arsenal of guns and, like, missile launchers. 
And then he'd what? go and buy tractors and just let them rust and rot in his yard. Never use them. Oh, I started to be on board with the tractors, but he never even used them. He never so used stupid. them. No, it was so dumb. He had this two acres of land. Yeah. Could have done a ton of stuff with it and just let things rot. It actually became very contentious in their neighborhood with their neighbors because he would just leave stuff out there for years and it would just rust. That's dumb. I know. Richard had also been hired as a part-time police officer in the town of Southbury, making $7 an hour. Wait. Right. Why the hell would he do that if he's an airline pilot? Well, they said that he took his job very seriously, but that he loved the power of being a cop. Oh. Like it really kind of turned him on to be a cop. Which then he'd be the worst person to be a cop. Right. This is why Keith believed that the Newtown Police Department were not in any hurry to begin questioning Richard about Hella's disappearance. Because he was also a cop. Oh, okay. By the end of the summer in 1986, Hella was going through their phone bill. She noticed a long-distance number that had been called multiple times every week. Hella, at this time, had begun talking openly about getting a divorce with her friends and family. You know what was expensive in 1986 as compared to today? What? Long-distance phone calls. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. So adjusted for inflation, if you paid now what you were paying back then, it would be like $20 a minute yeah. for, for a long-distance call. But back then, that was it was very expensive. I remember talking to family members or even family members that lived, you know, within the same state. And they'd be like, oh, so-and-so's on the phone. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Long distance. Yep. And you'd be running to the phone and all you could say is hi before your mom would be like, okay, that's it. Yeah, because by the minute. Yeah. So you'd have to get as much in you could, you know, in that minute or two because it just starts racking up. And by September, Hella was done and went to a local divorce attorney. The first thing the attorney told Hella was that if she was going for full custody of the children, she needed proof of infidelity and of the abuse. Hella opened up to her attorney and told her that Richard was dangerous and owned lots and lots of guns. She also told the attorney that if something happens to me, don't assume it was an accident. So she was not being quiet about her fear of Richard. So she was pretty open about it. She was very open about it. Well, at least she was telling people. Yes. Because you, know, you hear about the stories where no one knows. They knew. They knew what was going on. She almost needs to hire a uh, private investigator she, to catch him and all that stuff. She did. Didn't you listen to the beginning? No. <laughs> Daniel. Is that what Keith is? Keith is a oh, private I'm sorry. investigator. I couldn't, I, I couldn't remember <laughs> if he was like a relative or friend. Well, on September 4th, Keith Mayo was hired by Hella oh, and given okay. the phone records. Okay, I'm sorry. No, I'm just you're trying not. to keep it's all fine. this stuff lined up. It's a lot. I totally get it. I have been immersed in this case for seven days, and you're just now hearing it for the first time. I totally get it. Okay, so Keith Mustard, Keith Mayo <laughs> was hired. He's a, he's a PI. He's a PI, yes. All right, cool. And that's why he's like, hey- Dumbasses. Yeah. This guy is a piece of crap. You need to look into him. And <laughs> yeah, like, something's we are. wrong. Okay. All yeah. right, all right, I got it. 
By October, Keith had a name, address, and photos. Richard was seeing an Eastern Airlines flight attendant from New Jersey named Nancy Dodd. Really? That's her name? Nancy Dodd. Nancy Dodd. The photos are of the two kissing and cuddling in Nancy's condo area. Sure. So so they weren't even hiding. This jack-off never even hid. He didn't care. He thought very highly of himself. He really did. Now, this was the proof that Helen needed to start the divorce proceedings, but she never actually made it that far. Hmm. Keith began his investigation into Hella's disappearance by first interviewing the Crafts' live-in nanny. They also called her an au pair. What, what does that mean? I've heard that before. means nanny or like, someone that takes care of your kids. Okay. Au pair. Should we get one of those? We can't afford one of those. <laughs> Our kids are too old. <laughs> I forgot because I'm not an airline pilot making <laughs> 450 a year. Good Lord. <laughs> Now, the au pair, or the nanny, said that on the night of November 18th, she had the night off and went out, but knew that Hella was due back from her flight that evening. The nanny returned home after midnight, beating the harsh winter storm that was due early that morning. Richard woke the nanny up around 6 a.m. on the 19th. He told her to get the kids up and ready to leave for his sister's. The craft's home had lost power during the storm. Richard's sister had not lost power at her home in Westport, which was about 30 minutes away. The nanny thought it was a little strange that they were leaving because the craft's home had a large fireplace and a generator. So why would they leave? Right. And when asked where Hella was, Richard told her that Hella had already headed off to the sister's home. Why the hell would she do that without the kids? And why wouldn't she just get the kids up and take the kids? Right. The nanny did her job and they headed to Westport. Once there, she realized that Hella had never shown up, but Richard did not seem concerned at all. He left the nanny and the kids at his sister's house around 1030 a.m. and headed back home. By this time, the power was back on not returning to the sister's house to pick them up till later in the evening, around 7 p.m. Can I ask a question? Yes. Did the power actually go out? The power was actually out, yes. Okay, it wasn't like he just shut the power off and then told her that the power was off. No, it was actually off. Okay. But it was only off for a limited amount of time. The nanny also told Keith that she had heard the couple fighting on the evening of the 14th. Like a pretty big fight. Okay. And that the morning of the 19th, before they had left for the sisters, she had seen a large dark stain on the carpet near the door inside the master bedroom. It was the size of a salad plate. But when she and the kids had returned back to the craft's home, the carpet had been pulled up in that area. She had also noticed that Richard had bought a new chest freezer And it was now missing from the garage. But the old one was still there. And Hella was still not home. Wow. He bought a chest freezer? Yeah. And then while she was gone, it disappeared? Yes. Chest freezers aren't easy to move. No, it was about 200 pounds. Yeah. But at one time, for a couple days, 
there were two chest freezers in that garage. There was the old one and the new one. Gotcha. And then when she arrived back home, it wasn't there anymore. Hmm. The nanny. Keith began talking with family, friends, and co-workers of Hella's. He was convinced that Richard had done something horrible to Hella, that she had not abandoned her children, but he couldn't get the Newtown police on board. So being the guy he is, he went over their heads, and the state police took over the case. Good for him. So Keith must have had some pull with the state's attorney yeah, to be able to go over the police department. Investigators finally brought Richard in for an interview. He said that he had no idea where his wife was. When asked about the stain the nanny had seen on the carpet, he told them that it was a stain from the kerosene from a portable heater and that Richard had ripped up the carpet and taken the remnants to the dump. But those remnants were never found. Kerosene's not dark. Oh, it's not? No. It wouldn't leave like a big stain anyway. It would soak right through because it's petroleum. Oh, okay. There you are. Yeah. Another Daniel factoid. Yeah, if you take even like diesel fuel or something heavy like that, a heavier fuel, gasoline will just immediately go through and then evaporate. Whereas a kerosene will leave, you know, oil, but it's not dark. It's not like blood. No. On December 4th, Richard agreed to a polygraph exam and he passed it. Well, yeah, because he believes he's amazing. I think he can put things into little tiny boxes and leave them there. On the hillside. He's a psychopath. The state police were not done yet. They were able to get a search warrant based on probable cause. And guess what else they were able to do? What were they able to do? The Connecticut State Police were able to get Dr. Henry Lee and his team on board. Do you know who Dr. Henry Lee is? He's a famous and world-renowned forensic expert, for those of you that don't know. So after this case... He went on to work on the O.J. Simpson trial oh. and the unsolved murder of John Benet Ramsey. Gotcha. He's kind of a big time. Sounds like it. People kind of turn to him for bigger cases, just like that Michael Baden, Dr. Michael Baden. Okay. But then I was thinking, okay, so he worked on the cases of O.J. Simpson and John Benet Ramsey, and they never really Got had answers. Anywhere. Yeah. So maybe just because they were called because those were such politicized cases. Yeah, they were really big cases. I think that's the point that they were. They were so big that they called in Dr. Henry Lee. Right. To work on it. Right. The warrant was executed on the Crafts residence on December 25th, while Richard and the kids were spending the holiday in Florida. And with Dr. Lee and his team in tow, They went to the house at 5 Newfield Lane, and it was a wreck, an absolute wreck. They had to go through one of the back windows to get into the house, and they said there was dirty dishes everywhere. The home had not been cleaned. There was clothes. There were mattresses on the floor in the living room. Like a bomb had gone off in this house. That's weird. I know. It was really weird. Because Hella kept a very nice house, and then to walk into that, it was really weird. In the master bedroom on the edge of the foot of the mattress, five small blood stains were found and a six-inch smear. 
So it was on the actual naked mattress. Gotcha. It wasn't on a sheet. Right. And so you know how the sides of the mattress, you know, like six inches or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the side of the foot of the mattress. Yeah. Not on top, but on the side. Right. Okay. I just want you to picture this in your head. And it was human blood, type O positive, which matched Hella's blood type. It was also circulatory blood and not menstrual blood, meaning that it had come from an injured blood vessel. Okay. Because when you have blood on a mattress. Yeah, that's not unusual. No. And so it's really interesting that they can. They know the difference. They know the difference between menstrual and circulatory. Okay. According to Dr. Lee, the droplets were moving through the air at a medium velocity consistent with an injury caused by a blunt object, and the blood hit the mattress at an angle of 10 degrees, meaning that Hella, which they believe it's Hella's blood, was leaning over the area or kneeling at some point. Luminol was used in other areas of the home, but human blood matching Hella's was not found. But towels were found in the bathroom that had been washed and cleaned, but they were sprayed with luminol and they lit up like a freaking Christmas tree. Wait a minute. So you can't just wash stuff and everything goes away? No. Okay. (laughs) Sometimes bleach can destroy the sample. So if you really heavily bleach your towels, but this dumbass probably had no idea. And even then they'd still see that there's remnants. They may not be able to prove. I mean, they could still see that at some point that towel had a lot of blood on it. These towels had a ton of blood on them. Okay. So it wasn't just from like a bloody nose. Somebody was using these to clean up something. They were mopping up blood. Yeah. The old freezer was located in the garage and it was clean. So there was no blood in this freezer. And lots and lots of guns were found on the property. But where was Hella? And if there was a crime scene, where was it? It's on the carpet that's missing. When looking through the Kraft's credit card statement for the month of November, something stood out. On the MasterCard, Richard had purchased a large capacity freezer at an appliance store on November 13th for $375, but did not pick it up until November 17th which is the day before Hella was getting home from her flight. He had also rented a large 4,000-pound piece of machinery from Darien Rentals for $900 on the 19th, which is the day after she had gotten home. A 4,000-pound piece of equipment. like a. <laughs> Turned out he had rented... A huge wood chipper. Oh, Jesus. A brush bandit, to be exact. Telling the manager that some trees had come down on his two-acre property. But nope, that wasn't true. There were no trees that had come down on that property. Is this going to be like Fargo? Oh, stop, stop, stop. Just wait. Okay. Well, I don't know. (laughs) You're the one that told me the wood chipper. On December 30th, two investigators located a man named Joseph Hine. He had quite an interesting story to tell. Joe was a road maintenance worker for the county. On November 21st, at about 3.30 a.m., he was out plowing River Road at the intersection on South Flat Hill Road 
Joe spotted a U-Haul van on the side of the road. I just said road like 15,000 times. <laughs> Sorry. A large wood chipper was attached to the back. As he came closer, a man in a bright orange poncho appeared and waved the snowplow by. Joe continued plowing the road. An hour later, he came back in the opposite direction and saw the U-Haul off River Road in the area where the Housatonic River runs into Lake Zor. This time, the back of the U-Haul was up and he saw pieces of wood. Could this be something? Could the man in the orange poncho have been Richard with the big old wood chipper he had rented? But why? Joe took the investigators to the area he saw the wood chipper on the banks of Lake Zor, 20 minutes from Newtown. Along the bank, they found fresh but frozen mounds of wood chips. On the ground near one of the piles was an envelope. It was addressed to Hella Crafts. What? How was an envelope addressed to Hella on the banks of this lake, miles from the home she shared with Richard? A forensic team led by Dr. Lee was immediately brought to the location. They began sifting through the piles of wood chips and debris. Guess what they found? Huh. Something bad. 2,660 strands of blonde hair. The hair was cut but not by scissors. And the hairs were microscopically similar to the hairs found in Hella's hairbrush. Over 60 pieces of human bone fragments that were discovered to be O positive, the same blood type as Hella. Two teeth were found, one with a crown and one with a piece of jawbone still attached. Oh, God. The tooth with the crown matched dental records of Hella's. Holy crap. Now, one of the guys that was looking through all of this debris, he has a story about finding one of the teeth. He had been working all day. He was like on his eighth hour. Then he was in this little part of the stream and he fell. And when he got up, he went back to go wash his hands and there was a piece of tooth stuck in his hand. Oh, my gosh. Isn't like that It wild? was just scattered all over the place. It was everywhere. Mm-hmm. They also found pieces of a human skull, almost three ounces of human tissue, one fingernail painted bright red. I'd also read that they found part of a finger. And the polish on the fingernail matched a bottle of red nail polish found on Hella's bedside table. Pieces Dang. of blue fiber that were the same color as Hella's favorite nightshirt. A 49-pound pig carcass was run through the exact same wood chipper that had been rented by Richard. The debris left behind had the same cut marks as the bone fragments. Oh, that's an interesting test because I want to see basically what would happen. So I saw footage of them doing this with the pig, but the pig wasn't frozen, which I was a little surprised that they didn't freeze the pig. Oh, gotcha. So the, okay, so we're presuming now he murdered her, put her in the chest freezer, froze her body. That way there wouldn't be just splatter stuff everywhere. I probably should have saved that to the end, but I just thought that was really interesting. Oh. For four days, divers searched the waters near the shoreline, 
On December 30th, a chainsaw was found in pieces. On the teeth of the blade, more blue fibers, blonde hairs, and human tissue were found, matching the evidence found on the shore. Also, the identifying serial number on the chainsaw had been filed off, but a chemical solution was used and the number was now visible. The number E592-1616 matched a warranty card sent in by no other than Richard Crafts in January of 1981. He had purchased this chainsaw for $499. You want to know what most people never do, including myself? I know. Fill out. Send in the warranty card. Fill out and mail in the warranty cards. Nobody ever does that. Never. So what does this say about this guy? That he's a psychopath. Yeah, absolutely. He is like (laughs) so meticulous that he clearly this guy doesn't actually want to do yard work. No. But only psychopaths turn in the warranty card, right? (laughs) Just joking. I'm just teasing. Probably not. I mean... (laughs) I just don't even think about it. No. Well, I should. But. I mean, there's not enough time in the day to fill out a warranty card. <sighs> it's like, who who actually does surveys? You did. One time. If it's really important, like whoever the survey's for, if they really need it for their job, then I'll do it yeah. to be nice. But otherwise, I won't do it. Absolutely. Especially if you could win like $1,000 from Taco Bell. I totally do yeah. those ones. With all the forensic evidence, a death certificate was issued for Hella Crafts on January 13, 1987. Richard Crafts was arrested and charged soon after with the murder of his wife. Now, when they went to go arrest him, it was about 9, 9.30 at night. And he told them he wasn't going to come out, that they needed to come back in the morning. What? (laughs) And they were like... Uh, no, we're here to arrest you. And he would not come out of his house. They finally coaxed him out at about 1230. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He was trying to control his arrest. Sure. Just like he was trying to control everything else. The trial began in May of 1988 in New London, Connecticut. They had to switch the venue because it was obviously so popular in Newtown that they had to switch the venue to New London. And it was a jury of 10 men and two women. Richard remained defiant during the 53-day trial. Now, what the state believes happened is that Richard knew about Hella's intent to divorce him and her desire to have full custody of the three children. Now, Richard did not like that. So he decided to murder Hella instead. Hella arrived home after 6.30 p.m. and the nanny had the night off. Hella put the children to bed around 8 p.m. It is believed that she and Richard began fighting. Hella changed into her favorite blue nightshirt and folded up a piece of mail and put it in the front pocket of that nightshirt. Hella must have been changing the sheets on the bed and was near the foot of the mattress when she was hit in the back of the head with something heavy, possibly a police-issued flashlight. Damn. Hella fell to her knees and was struck again, her head sliding down the bare mattress. The last blow was fatal. Richard wrapped her in a sheet and carried her lifeless body into the garage and put Hella into the new freezer. He then began trying to clean up the scene. The children and the nanny were at his sister's for the entirety of the next day. 
Richard rented the U-Haul and picked up the wood chipper. He prepared for what he was going to do next. While the nanny and the three children slept, they believe it's on the night of the 19th, Richard removed Hella's now frozen body out of the freezer, put her and the wood pieces in the U-Haul, and drove to the shore of Lake Zor. Richard dismembered Hella's body, and there was no blood splatter since she was frozen. Gotcha. So that was pretty smart. Oh, yeah. And he began feeding the parts through the wood chipper and into the lake, along with the logs that he had brought from home. Richard then took the chainsaw apart and threw it in the lake. He cleaned up and then went home, telling people that Hella had just up and left or telling them many different stories. So in one of my favorite podcasts called It's Always the Husband, they have a great theory And their theory is, is that a woman just doesn't leave. Nope. And she really just doesn't leave her children. When a woman leaves, she's going to take things with her. Things like her mascara, her antidepressants, her favorite shampoo and conditioner. A ton of stuff. She's going to take things with her. She's not just going to walk out. Unless the house is on fire, she's packing 75 bags. Well, maybe not 75, but she's always going to take her mascara and more than menstrual a, pads. More than a guy would take. Guys aren't going to grab their tampons. You might grab deodorant and a toothbrush, right? So Maybe. I agree with this theory. A woman really doesn't just leave. No. But Richard's telling people she just left because all her stuff is still there. Yeah, I agree with it. It's also crazy because they didn't have the witness, the guy working on the road, the snowplow driver. If he hadn't seen that U-Haul on the side of the road, they'd have no idea where this happened. Right. It was pure luck. And that he had even reported it because he thought it was so weird that he reported it. Yeah. So good job, Joe. After 53 days of testimony, the trial ended in a mistrial. What? There was one juror who believed that Richard had been set up and that Hella had left on her own. This was one of those jurors who believed that he was put on the jury as divine intervention. Stop. That God wanted him to find Richard not guilty. He refused to keep deliberating and just left. So the judge was forced to call a mistrial. Oh, my. That guy deserves a lot of stuff that I can't say. Yeah. What the hell is wrong with him? I don't know. It was a a a guy. guy. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you think her ground up body was from? Exactly. He believed that the evidence was all planted and that Richard was innocent. I know. It was crazy. A dumbass. So they had to start all over. Oh. The second trial began in September of 1989. It was in Norwalk, Connecticut, because they had to move it again. And it was an exact carbon copy of the first trial. On November 21st, 1989, after eight hours of jury deliberation, Richard was found guilty, and in January of 1990, he was sentenced to 50 years in prison. On January 30th, 2020, 82-year-old Richard was transferred to a halfway house after serving 30 years of his 50-year sentence. It was shortened due to good behavior and jailhouse job performance. Sure. He was fully released back into society on January 1st, 2020. He's out. 
He's out right now. <sighs> well, okay, but he's 85. Right, because if he's still alive today, Richard Crafts is 85 years old. I could not find any information about him, a picture, whether or not he was dead or alive. I couldn't find anything like that. Because his name isn't Richard Crafts anymore. No. It's something else. It's Dick Crap. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Ooh. I just came up with that. That's a good, yeah, I like it. So the law that let him out early was recently changed. To something more strict? To something more strict. You can't earn time off your sentence by being good or being good at your job in prison if you were convicted for a murder. Gotcha. So there's no released on good behavior. It was just recently changed. Huh. Hella's three children were raised by Richard's sister, and she actually testified against her brother in the trial. And she also sued Richard on behalf of the three children for over a million dollars. She knew he did it. Oh, yeah. She 100% believed yeah. that her brother did this. Well, once he goes to prison, wouldn't they get everything he owns? Right. But for some reason, she needed to sue him to get his pension. Oh. On behalf of the children. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because technically he's still alive. It's not like he died. So they really are... Yeah, because otherwise they wouldn't have any legal standing to take it from him. If he died, then they would automatically inherit whatever is inheritable. But they needed it. But they needed it right then. Yeah, and it, and it was theirs. They should be getting that right, money. Right, right. Fun fact. Are you ready for a fun fact? Oh, gosh. Yeah, anything. This was the first conviction of murder by the state of Connecticut without a body. Hella's murder literally changed the use of forensic science in a courtroom for the better. But they had pieces of the body. They had pieces, but they didn't have a full body. No, but they had enough to constitute that clearly she's dead because of right. you can't have a part of a skull and a tooth and a jawbone. But this was the first time that forensic science was used to prove that these little tiny fragments were actually somebody's body. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. That's just amazing to me. Now, many of you, like Daniel, are thinking, wow, this story sounds familiar. This is said to have been the inspiration for the last scene of Fargo when we see Steve Buscemi's body being pushed, pushed in into gotcha. the wood chipper. Of course, for dramatic effect, that was just a mist of blood spraying out of the wood chipper. Well, his body wasn't frozen. Right. he had just yeah. been killed. But the misting just blood and parts spring right. across that frozen snow. That was an awesome movie. Oh, By the yeah. way, we should probably go watch it now. <laughs> it's so, well, be, it's yeah. so horrible, yet it has the moments and it has the right personalities to go along with it. And I don't remember yeah. her name, you know, but the, the, uh, the police officer. Margie. And she's pregnant. You know, it's yeah. just it's funny. It's almost a comedy, yet it's like this. It's horrible. It's kind of like us. It's dark humor. Exactly. Yeah. Cohen Brothers. Good job. Like you do something stupid and then you do even more stupid stuff to cover for your stupid stuff. Just like us. Yep. Yeah. Well, <laughs> killed anyone. But. No, no, that's not coming anytime soon. No. 
All right. Well, all my information came from a ton of articles. There's really a lot of information on this case, including a great write-up by Mark Gatto from CrimeLibrary.com. This is also the very first Forensic Files episode ever. Wow. Ever. It's pretty fun to watch that. I think it was like, I think it was 2007. Well, it unfortunately has everything going for it. Oh, and it has amazing forensic work. Yeah. But I mean, you okay, you have a airline pilot who's basically on top of his game, who's also... A cop. A cop. And yeah. he's banging everything that he can. And then he's right. got this awesome, lovely wife. Who's a flight attendant. Who's a flight... Yeah. I mean, it's got everything. And then he ends up, you know, killing her in a wood chipper. I mean, you can't... It, it, it's everything. Right. It's a movie. It is absolutely a movie. I also heard this case recently on the podcast, The Minds of Madness, which is an amazing podcast. You should go check that out if you haven't. And this case is also known as the Wood Chipper Murder, just in case. Goodness. Anybody wants to look up more information. No one's going to look at a wood chipper the same. No. I don't think I've ever seen a wood chipper in real life. No. Scratch that. I have on the side of the road. I've never actually used one in person. They're no joke. They're scary. Oh, yeah. Super no, the, scary. They have ones that you can put a full log straight into it and it'll send out dust on the other side. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Like not even slow down. I know. I kept thinking of Deadpool 2, you know, where he lands in the wood chipper. No. Oh, gosh. I haven't watched much of the Deadpool's. Our son, unfortunately. Who's in that? They're Ryan, hilarious. Ryan Reynolds? No. Yeah, Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a scene where one guy lands in a wood chipper, and it's awful. Does he and die? And so I kept thinking, of course. Well, I don't know. Maybe they shut it off in time. I have no legs. You know, I'm, I'm not sure. No, no, he's, he's dead. All right, well, I guess we can end on that. <laughs> Daniel, what did you think of my case? That was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And once again, we have a man who murdered his wife, and then there's these three kids without parents who now, for the rest of their life, know that their father killed their mom, cut her up, and then pushed her through a wood chipper. Chainsawed her up and yeah. fed the chunks through the wood chipper. Uh, just so that they horrific. would fit. Oh, these poor kids. Once again, it's the kids that... It's always the kids. It's always the kids that are hurt the most. Oh, I have a question, comment, concern, gripe, complaint. Okay, okay what? Why did she stay in the house when she decided he was dangerous and she wanted to divorce him? I read that from her friends that she was staying because of the children, of course, and because she felt safer because the nanny was always there. And he wasn't going to do anything with the nanny there. But she's already made it known that she wants to divorce him. Right. So she can't think that now he's thinking clearly. Well, no, he wasn't. And because they kept trying to serve him the divorce papers, but he would be gone. Or he they wanted to serve him at the police station, but he refused to go to the police station to get served the divorce papers. It was going to be a contentious situation no matter how she told him or when she told him. But she knew he was dangerous 
And I think she stayed in the house for the kids and because they had the nanny there. Was he still flying when he was the cop? Yeah, he was doing both. How? I don't know. And they said he would disappear for days at a time. And they don't know if he was going to fly or if he was going on a shift for his police officer position or if he was going to see his girlfriend. And you guys, he had two other girlfriends that he was banging on the side. So he had this one serious girlfriend and then these two others that he would just meet up with and have sex with. Like he boasted about his conquests on the stand during the trials. Okay, so he's a commercial airline pilot. He's a police officer. He's not a volunteer police officer. Not anymore. He was hired part-time. He was okay. a volunteer for oh, like okay. four out four years. Okay. And he's a father of three mm-hmm. and a husband and multiple girlfriends on the side. Right. How? How how the hell does he have time? He had an extra hour. <sighs> I don't know. He made time. Goodness. He was a psychopath. Maybe psychopaths don't need to sleep as much as normal people. I guess. Maybe that's why I only sleep like five hours a night. Because you're a psychopath? Maybe I'm a psychopath. Oh, no. I'm No, no way. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I couldn't juggle that much stuff. No way. I can juggle one ball. Someday I'm going to do two. But for now, one at a time. That's all I can do. Oh, I think you juggle more balls than that, darling. Well, I dropped most of them. So. <laughs> All right. Well, you want to do some Patreon shout outs? I wrote them out for you. Oh, good. Because I'm such a good little wife. So that I can butcher people's names. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening to us and my stuttering <laughs> and whistling because sometimes it sounds like it and helping us out, especially Patreon and just subscribing. We really appreciate it. For those of you that are on Patreon, we want to thank you so much. Jessica K. Thank you so much, Jessica. Lorraine H. Thanks, Lorraine. Jess M. Thanks, Jess. And Kelly A. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate everyone and helping out our humble podcast. Melissa really works her ass off to do this, and obviously I don't. <laughs> so I thank you very much. Thank you guys so much. We have been overwhelmed with the love and support and just people wanting to be part of our crazy little community over on Patreon. And we are just so humbled and thankful and, you know, it keeps us going. We can do this for a few more years, I think. Yep. (laughs) Daniel goes, yep. At least a month or two. (laughs) All right. Well, if you are enjoying us, please go rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. If you have any case suggestions, can you send them to me at tilldeathdoespart at att.net? That's really where I am communicating mostly with people about cases. And if you want more of us, there's always Patreon. Sure. And I think that's it. That's it. All right. Well, be careful. For marriage is a life sentence. And divorce is always the better option. Yep. Forget the wood chipper. Bye. Bye.